Businesses count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And whether you're going into your office or working from home, you need an integrated PC solution. You need the unrivaled Built for Business PC platform that gives you performance, security, manageability, and stability for your entire PC fleet. The Intel V Pro platform. It helps you take care of business and can remotely update, restore, and secure your PCs even if a system is outside of the firewall. Intel V Pro. Built for what IT heroes do. Built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Hey folks, Preet here. As expected, this election has been chaotic and confusing. As of this taping on Wednesday morning, we don't have a winner in the presidential election, nor do we know for sure which party will hold the Senate majority. It could take days before we learn the final results. To make sense of what we do know, the CAFE team is coming together for an election special. I'm joined by all the CAFE hosts. So as the vote counting continues, we'll try to break down the election as best we can. Here goes. Hey folks, it's the CAFE post-election roundtable. I'm not sure what state of mind everyone is in. We'll find out in a moment. But first, CAFE hosts, I'm going to do a quick roll call. Ann Milgram. Present. Present? You say present, not here? <laughs> There's a lot happening in the world. Present. Are you gonna, present. Pre- yeah, present. I feel like that's a philosophical comment, not just Okay, a, here. A no, you can say present. Okay, Ellie Honig. Here, I'm feeling good. I actually got a little bit of sleep, ready to roll. Okay, you weren't asked any of those questions yet, but thank you. <laughs> Objection unresponsive. Ken, Ken, Ken Weinstein. I'm here. Good morning. Good morning. John Carlin. Present. You're a little slow. You're a little slow there, but hopefully you'll quicken up. Maybe not fully as present. The, as, the, as the hour progresses. Well, I'm certainly not. <laughs> Lisa Monaco. Lisa Monaco. Do we think Lisa Monaco is still in bed? No. What do we think I, Lisa Monaco is doing? I think she's probably up and working at one of her many jobs. All right, so we have to we have to go forward and proceed uh, without Lisa Monaco, um, the best among us. So b- before we talk about what's going on, and all of this is fluid, I should note that we are all assembled at our microphones at uh, about 10.15 in the morning on Wednesday. By the time folks hear this, many things may have changed. So take what we say, knowing that the time was early on Wednesday. Anybody get any sleep? Very little. <laughs> I got about six hours. I made a smart decision at midnight. How'd you do midnight. that? Because I made a smart decision at midnight that we weren't going to get anything decisive or sort of firm for at least until the next morning. So midnight to six, and uh, it was it was a wise decision, I will say. I tried to do the same thing, but I couldn't sleep well, not surprisingly. Yeah, I didn't even try. It was 3.30 before I knocked out. Still couldn't sleep. Were many beverages consumed? Oh, massive moon. <laughs> Did you sleep pre? I slept some. I, I went to bed late. I wanted to hear the quote unquote president speak and see how crazy his talk was going to be. And we'll get to that. And then my kids were up early. So there's sound and commotion. So it wasn't, it wasn't a ton, but I made it. I made it to this podcast recording. Maybe we should, for a brief second, Ellie, you wanted to sort of tell us where we are what is certainly the case with respect to the state of play in the various states, understanding that this is subject to change over the course of the day? Yeah, subject to all the legal disclaimers, votes still being counted. At this moment, it seems that things are trending fairly solidly towards Joe Biden. Basically, all the states that we sort of knew whether they would go red or or blue have gone those way. And we have all the important states now, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, maybe to a lesser extent, Georgia and North Carolina all seem to either have Biden ahead or he's pulling away or closing the gap quickly because what we're seeing now is more of the mail-in ballots be counted and more of the urban area in-person votes be counted, both of which really trend strongly in Democrats and Biden's favor. So I'd say at this point, it looks likely, not certain, but likely that Biden will take this. 
Well, that's assuming no interference going forward. That's assuming legal challenges that don't go anywhere and all of that, right? That's assuming an awful lot of things. Yeah, and th- those, those would be top of the list. And then just quickly, the state of the race with respect to the Senate, not great for Democrats, right? Yeah, it looks like it looks like the Republicans are likely to hold on to a perhaps a slightly diminished majority. It was 53 to 47. Looks like that may be down to 52 or 51. But Democrats lost uh, lost the Doug Jones seat in Alabama, picked up the seat in Colorado with Hickenlooper uh, taking out Cory Gardner. There still needs to be special Arizona. Elections. Let's talk about the astronaut, Mark Kelly. Yes. Big win for the Democrats right there. Mark Kelly taking out Martha McSally, who now has lost to both Arizona senators in, in consecutive elections. I don't know if that's ever been done before, but it looks like the, the Republicans will hold on barely to the Senate majority. Again, pending special elections in Georgia and some, some remaining vote counting. So where, where do we go from here? And you were, before we started taping, we're giving some cautionary notes to the yeah. group. Yeah, I mean, I I agree very strongly with with Ali as to where the race is. I think I think Biden will win the presidency most likely, and that the Republicans will hold the Senate. But the thing for people to remember, and I know it's hard to put that aside for a minute, but the votes are still being counted. The actual election votes are still being counted. And, you know, you wouldn't tell your child in the middle of a soccer game that his team is winning. And so don't play the rest of the game. You know, same thing is true. You don't stop a baseball game in the seventh inning. There are countless ways in which we all understand that the process has to play out. Every vote has to be counted. We can't end the podcast right now. We can't end the podcast right now. That's, <laughs> that, like, should have been my, hey, that should have been my example. The podcast example. is over. <laughs> podcast you can't, you is can't over. End, end the podcast on minute nine. Um, but the reality is that the votes are going to be counted. We hope, I think we'll learn a lot more this afternoon by the time probably the podcast drops. And then in the next couple of days, we'll learn more. But people should also understand that the examples you gave about litigation are going to be true. There are going to be recounts. There are going to be efforts to litigate this. And people have to just understand, like, democracy is about voting. Voting is about counting ballots. And it's going to take time um, and probably some back and forth before all those ballots get counted. So we have to be really thoughtful about making sure people understand, like you and I said it a couple weeks ago. A lot of people have been saying it, but it's worth just reminding folks that every every ballot, every vote has to get counted and that that will take time. And then it will probably be contested and litigated in the closed states. Can I just uh, and your note of, note of caution is, is, of course, well taken, but I'll say from from a national security perspective and worrying about interference with this election, if we should pause for a second on what went right and how American democracy so far has withstood an unprecedented test of not only voting in the midst of a pandemic and employing new methods in states to allow people to vote. Turnout looks like it's going to break records. So more people are voting than ever before. And the percentage of Americans who voted might be the highest in more than 100 years. We did not see significant interference by foreign actors. We did not see the violence that I know some feared uh, at polls, despite you know a, a summer of, of civil unrest. And what looks like is going to happen is, Dan's point, we're going to count we're going to count votes and that we people were able to exercise their right to vote in many states, including one I know where, where I was involved in litigation in Georgia, there are paper ballots. So if there needs to be a recount, there's something that we can trust in terms of what the recount is. And it looks like trending, we're going to have a relatively clear result. So I, I don't know about you guys, but I had a lot of anxiety going in about our ability to pull off. I mean, let's go back to the primaries and the disaster that some of the states were in terms of being able to pull off a, uh, an effective vote. We made it past an important threshold. And now, a word from our sponsors. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from NetSuite. I've never worked in media before, and it's really fun to see deals come through, especially when we signed with MKBHD and the Waveform podcast. That was one of my favorite shows on YouTube, and I love that we've partnered with him. I'm Christina Ho-Rodriguez, and I am a Senior Manager of Revenue Accounting at Vox Media. At Vox, I'm not so siloed in my own revenue accounting department. I'm getting to see the big picture of, of what the company is working on. In my first year, the company went through a really big merger with another media company, and we switched from our old ERP system to NetSuite. We had to integrate NetSuite really fast. It was 
very user-friendly right out of the box. Over the last couple months, our team developed a new revenue reporting module that makes our reporting much faster, much more automated. I have a lot of hope with what we can do in the future with NetSuite so that we're able to optimize, make our team a lot more successful, and improve our processes. We're only as good as our best data, and NetSuite allows us to see it all. Discover the power of NetSuite, a leading cloud financial system serving more than 37,000 businesses. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com preet. That's netsuite.com preet to get your own KPI checklist. Support for this show comes from DraftKings Sportsbook. The big game is almost here and DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with a brand new offer. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code PREET. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58 with code PREET. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsibility. Gaming resources. Were you also surprised? Maybe Ken, you can you can address this. I mean, Ann and I talked on the show on the Cafe Insider over and over again. These threats that the president was issuing to send law enforcement agents to the polls and troops to the polls, and we had to wonder was the Secretary of Defense going to play ball? N- none of that happened. Are you surprised by that? Yeah, there was lots of talk about deploying federal agents and officers, um, you know, for this anticipated violence on the streets. And then you saw this week that um, this fence went up all around the perimeter of the White House, 10 feet high or something, um, in anticipation of a lot of violence. You know, my office is just three blocks from the White House. And a month ago, they were sending out notices that they were going to be boarding up the the first and second floors of the building as of October 30th, which I think is a really sad commentary that everybody's expecting this horrible, violent uh, reaction to the, the election. Hasn't really happened. I mean, there have been incidents, but it hasn't happened. We also didn't see, as you said, the the federal authorities getting too involved in law enforcement uh, out on the streets, as we saw with uh, Seattle and Portland. So, so far, so good. Keep in mind, however, I mean, this might well be a contested election where people will start getting riled up. And look, you heard the president at 2 a.m. last night. First thing he said was that this was you know, there was voter fraud going on, or there was, uh, you know, an uh, effort to steal the election. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. That was all intended to rile up his supporters, undermine confidence in the election, which I think you know, that's that could result in, you know, people out on the streets in the coming days. So uh, authorities still need to be aware and be vigilant. But hopefully, you know, as we've heard from the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, and other cooler heads in the administration, they're going to be very loath to use federal um, and particularly military personnel for law enforcement uh, efforts out on the streets, as it should be. It seems to me also, it's not just going to be about the legal battle. It's going to be a little bit a battle for the hearts and minds you know, in a persuasive dimension for the president. But Ellie, do you, want, do you have up, as we were getting ready to start taping, we understood that the president tweeted, and I'm sure there'll be many tweets between now and the time folks listen to this, but he's he's trying to make a record. Do you have that tweet? So here's what the president just tweeted. Last night I was leading, often solidly, in many key states, in almost all instances, Democrat run and controlled. Then, one by one, they started to magically disappear as surprise ballot dumps were counted. Whatever that means. That was my note. Back to the tweet. Very strange. And the pollsters got it completely and historically wrong. So, look, it's consistent with what he came out and said at 2.30 in the morning last night. And I know we've gotten used to this. We've sort of gotten numb to the president's rhetoric. And and I think there's a tendency to roll our eyes and say, that's crazy talk. And we know it is crazy talk. But 
I think if there's one thing, at least the early results reminded us, and I think the margin in some of the states was better for Trump than a lot of us expected, Florida, other states like that, there's still a huge portion of this country that listens to and takes everything the president says very seriously. And so I think this kind of rhetoric is really dangerous in in the ways that John was just talking about. And as much as I like to laugh at it and scoff at it and say that it's ridiculous, it's dangerous too. Yeah, I don't think we can laugh at it at all. I I agree with that. I mean, I I think we should also note that yesterday was a historic day. There were a lot of people who voted and that what's clear is that our country is deeply divided. Um, You know, we're we're talking about waiting to this afternoon to hear the results from Michigan and Wisconsin. But we're we're talking about a race that's that close that we're waiting for additional polls. And I think the president exploits that. I think the delay, frankly, benefits the president the longer it goes on because he'll continue to send these tweets. And and I think at this point, I mean, I don't I wonder what you guys think about this, but I think at this point, Biden also Biden needs to be out there speaking or Harris needs to be out there speaking and talking to the American public and saying, this is what's happening. We're we're still counting votes. Here's where here's where we are. But I, I think the president will continue to tweet. And I would I would guess that they get increasingly um, unhinged or or sort of desperate as the as the day goes on. I mean, it's in his advantage to he's been setting up the voter fraud argument for three or four months. I mean, longer, but really in earnest for the past few months. And what he wants to be able to say is like, look, I won in the ballot bo- in, on Election Day. And now all these ballots are coming in that are that are taking me out of that winning position. And so he he's trying to play offense on that. And I think we all have to be very careful at making sure that people understand that Actually, it's not, the election's not called till all the votes have been counted, and that's not in the president's interest. I think that's right. And if you look at you know, from the from a national security perspective again, or cyber, where General Nakasone just put out uh, a statement from the perspective of central uh, of the cyber command, you know what they are concerned about would be foreign nations trying to take advantage of a period of uncertainty to, it's not really in favor of one candidate or another, it's just to undermine the world's faith in democracy because some of the key, our key adversaries overseas view democracy as an existential threat. And that's why I do think it's important to take stock for a second because there's all this chatter and uh, sports, uh, you know, sports analogies. Look, actually, People voted. They voted successfully and peacefully that the it is not I, I don't think it's going to be an historic polling error. We'll see. It it seems like it's going to be roughly around the 2016 uh, in terms of uh, where the polls were off. And actually, the way the votes are coming in now are roughly consistent with what was predicted as one of the possible scenarios of a closely run election. The amount of time it's taking to count ballots was also Predicted, And during this period of uncertainty, I think you're going to see, I hope you'll see the, the career professionals in the military, in cyber command, in law enforcement. And I would hope leaders from both parties calling for calm with the exception of our commander in chief, unfortunately, but that others from both parties could call for calm, wait for votes to be counted. And we just haven't seen any significant uh, irregularities. Well, I clearly have been up too late since I can't speak. But we haven't seen anything that irregular. Can I ask a question of John or Ken on what you were just saying about the undermining of democracy? One of the things I noticed yesterday is that a lot of voters being interviewed, and and I've heard this for the past week, were saying things like, you know, Trump lies, Biden lies, they're all liars. And that is one of the sort of core arguments that we sort of see coming out of like, Putin and Russia, which is like everybody's a liar so or everybody cheats, right? So, you know, yeah, we cheat too, but it's it's no worse than the other guy. And and it sort of it really does undercut democracy. And I I it's sort of like a I wonder if you guys feel like there's any sense of that as an intentional effort here to really undermine democracy by saying, yeah, they're they're and it was very much against, I thought, in in the last week against Biden saying, like, sure, the president lies sometimes, but Biden lies too. And so, you know, throw up your hands and, you know, vote for the president. You know him. And I just I wasn't sure how close it came to that line, but when you were when you were talking just now about undercutting democracy, it it worries me a lot to have like a significant number of the American voters saying like both candidates are total liars. I I don't know whether I, I should be worried. Yeah, actually, I think you, you definitely should be worried. And I think you raise a couple of good points. One is, look, at this point, I think we can step back and take some satisfaction 
that it doesn't appear that there's been much disruption of the voting process itself by our foreign adversaries. So, you know, we haven't seen any impact on the voting counts, on the registration rolls, this kind of thing, which is all very satisfying. And, and as John said earlier, I think the, the country can really pat itself on the back that we've been able to pull off a vote, you know, with real challenges and headwinds, you know, the pandemic uh, situation, allegations of voter fraud, concerns about the regularity of the mails and mail-in ballots, um, and still been able to do it. So, you know, it might be that that we haven't seen much interference in the mechanics of the voting, but that doesn't mean that the Russians and others haven't been trying to mount an influence campaign and a disinformation campaign with the idea of just sowing confusion and discord. Um, and that gets to your point. And I think the, the second point here is that you know, the Russians are very adept at this. I mean, they've got a lot of practice. They've been working on it all around the world with their adversaries everywhere, um, and even with some of their friends. I mean, they're they're very good at this, and they're very sophisticated. So to your point, I'm sure they're thinking about that sort of line of attack. You know, Trump, um, Trump lies. No, you know, it's pretty, pretty well ascertainable on the record that he lies with some regularity. It's good for the Russians to put out the narrative that, yeah, he's not alone. All these politicians lie simply to undermine our confidence in politicians and the political process and to keep people from voting on merit, basically. And that undermines the value of our vote, the value and perceived integrity of the democratic process, which is exactly what Russia wants to do. So I think you're, you're getting on something because I noticed the same thing, that this, this sort of constant narrative about Biden being a liar, Biden being a liar, that might well have been put out, you know, by, um, by folks who are, you know, uh, affiliated with the Trump campaign um, as a as a campaign tactic, I started suspecting, however, that it might have been an intentional effort by the Russians as well. It definitely would be consistent with their tradecraft, too, as you say, and to and that would be a particular hallmark of Russia versus some of the other regimes is that they uh, they they make you doubt whether there is any objective truth. I feel like that's that's an asset. It's the way he governs in in Russia to ensure his authoritarian regime and it's the way he tries to attack democratic processes. I don't know, though. I, I've seen the anecdotal um, kind of man-on-the-street interviews, and it's definitely something to be concerned about. But again, we're in a moment where hopefully other institutions rise up that give assurance to the American people. And I'm not sure, you know, in terms of the trustworthiness of candidates, I'd be interested to see what the polling data shows, because it seems like actually there's a greater liking to Biden, whether he wins or lose, loses than there has been, for instance, for either Clinton or uh, Trump in the 2016 election. Right. Did you think, does anybody think that with respect to what you just said, John, that the attorney general, although he's a controversial figure, or at least the director of the FBI should make some official statement about the degree to which there was not interference in the election and how smoothly they went? I mean, one thing that, that Ann and I have discussed a number of times was the concern that, you know, forget about foreign interference for a moment, but small irregularities or, you know, a a one-off case in Pennsylvania or some other state with somebody doing something funny with ballots would be exaggerated beyond all proportion by the president and his allies so he could more readily make the argument that there was widespread fraud. I, I don't, I haven't seen any anecdotal stories of even that. So these other institutions, do you think, do you think Chris Ray should, should address the public? You've seen, so again, General Nakasone, and this is unprecedented, gave an on-the-record interview with Ellen Nakashima of the Washington Post that I read. I'm not sure if he otherwise put out put out the statement to say that there were uh, they were seeing fewer signs of election interference than they've uh, seen in 2018. So we've already had one official put it out, and he was focused on foreign foreign adversaries as as befits the legal roles and authorities of Cyber Command. I do think that that would be helpful in terms of a statement from from Director Ray. Again, no politics, but just from a intelligence law enforcement perspective, have they seen interference with this uh, election on scale? And if you recall the last minute press conference that was held uh, in regard to the Iranian interference and bizarre plot to imitate Proud Boys to uh, leave intimidating messages for potential Democratic voters in Florida, you did see such a statement by Director Ray, And I thought the focus of his statement was exactly along the lines that you suggest, Preet, where he was trying to assure folks that although there had been an attempt, that in fact, that he was feeling confident about 
the integrity of our uh, of our electoral process and and votes votes cast. So a similar statement taking taking stock or a report, you know, to Congress that could be a public public report would be would be helpful and would help thwart our adversaries from trying to make mischief. Hey, Ellie, can I call on you for a second? Yeah, sure. Not everyone may know, but you are deep in the middle of writing a book, <laughs> which you didn't ask me to plug, but I will anyway. Thank you. About, about our notorious Attorney General, Bill Barr. We've spent a lot of time also talking about all the ways in which Bill Barr might help the president, might either order law enforcement agents to go do various things or file suit on behalf of the president. What do you think he's up to? Why do you think he's been so absent from the yeah. public scene? And going forward, I imagine the president is calling, among other people, Bill Barr and saying, do something here. What do you think he can do or will do? You know, Preet, I'm starting to wonder if, if Bill Barr perhaps has run out of tricks here at the very end. God knows he has been completely in the bag for Donald Trump since the moment he took office, and specifically with respect to this election. I mean, we saw Barr out there desperately trying to gin up this October surprise. He tried it with the Durham report. He tried it with the unmasking probe that he gave to a different U.S. attorney. But both of those things turned up duds. Barr has also tried it with some of his rhetoric about election fraud, mail-in ballot fraud, you know, about other issues that have been almost echoes of what Trump's been saying. But the problem is, look, you, you can twist facts. You can, I'm not saying you should, but Bill Barr has shown a willingness to twist facts, to distort the law, but he's not a wizard. He's not a genie. He can't just conjure evidence of something where there is absolutely none. So he may have sort of reached the end point of his meddling powers. The, the other big question, I think it's related to this, is are we going to end up this vote count within the range of litigation? Because there is the possibility that DOJ and Bill Barr weigh in in favor of efforts by the Trump campaign to try to get votes thrown out. But you have to be in a pretty close range for that to go anywhere. I mean, Ann mentioned the possibility of recounts. Absolutely in play. I have no problem with that. They're all prescribed by law. They depend on you know how wide the margin is in various states. But to me, the more problematic, the more insidious possibility is if the Trump campaign is close enough in enough states, few enough states, that they can move to throw out ballots and claim that there's fraud. And that's where Barr may be able to lend a hand, A, in backing this fraud narrative. I don't know how they're going to do it. There's just no evidence. And B, in supporting the sort of legal positions that, well, this ballot deadline in Pennsylvania, for example, was unconstitutionally extended. And we can talk more about sort of the nuances of that, but one of the important things here is going to be how close is this? Because if Biden wins and it's really close, I think we're in the litigation zone. But if he wins by a certain margin that I can't really define, then litigation is just going to be fruitless. Can I take just a slight issue, Ellie, with uh, yeah. I think I think you're you're being very optimistic on Bill Barr. I mean, my my feeling is uncharacteristic, that, <laughs> uncharacteristically so. And, and I think I think you're right. He has disappeared, which feels odd and it feels odd to me as well. But I also feel that there are a couple of points here. One is that. Elections are state, are run by the states, yes. and the way that they get to federal courts is because state courts rule and there is an issue that gets brought to a federal court. But the primary focus of elections, there's, you know, 50 plus divisions of elections in states and U.S. territories, and, and that's how the process goes. And so Barr hasn't really had much of a role to play yet. But I do think that there are a number of ways in which he can get involved and can try to interfere and can try to throw the weight of the Department of Justice and the local U.S. attorneys behind Trump. And I just, I'm not saying he's going to do it, but I, I personally feel like it's certainly on the table in my view that, that this could come up. The other point, which is worth making just so people understand, is that, yes, the president is out there alleging voter fraud. But, you know, as I've said before, I ran a state division of elections. And a lot of where the litigation is going to come is not going to have anything to do with fraud. It's going to have to do with provisional ballots, people who couldn't be found in the voting books that day. And maybe they actually lived in another district or they moved. Were they voting in the right place? Should that ballot be counted? People who didn't fully mark ballots, absentee ballots, people who's like, there's going to be a ton of ways in which that's what a lot of the litigation and the recount will revolve around. I don't think it will revolve as much around people illegally voting twice or another way engaging, engaging in fraud. But anyway, I hope you're right on Bill Barr, Ellie, and that I'm wrong. Yeah, look, I don't have a lot of faith in him. I'm not exactly sure what 
he can do. Like specifically, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. What could you imagine him doing with respect to U.S. attorneys that could aid the Trump camp here, other, other than taking a litigation position that there is fraud or this vote deadline in Pennsylvania, for example, was unconstitutionally extended. That I can see. Yeah, that's what I think he could do, right? He could he could basically say to the local U.S. attorney in Pennsylvania, I want you to, to litigate this issue. Again, that's not to say that they agree. That's not to say that that there's a claim that, that can legitimately be made. But I, I think we should expect from Bill Barr, that he'll play every trick he can. I just go back to him announcing the state, local Dallas election fraud case, talking about it as hundreds or thousands of fraudulent ballots when it turned out to be, you know, a handful and not a federal case. He presented it as though there was some federal involvement and he really didn't know the facts. And so, and again, also announcing the Pennsylvania election fraud case. So I think he's setting this up to be engaged. I just, I I don't know what we'll see. Can we talk about the courts for a second? You know, that's an institution, among other institutions, that usually provides some kind of a check. And I got to say, you know, by and large, in the lead up to the election, especially in the days before November 3rd, the courts have been pretty good. There was a lot of speculation about what would happen in this case in Texas, where 127,000 people relying upon local officials' pronouncements cast their ballots by, um, if it was drive-by, drive-through, Drive-in. I always refer to a drive-in movie with Anne as a drive-through movie, which would be a very poor film experience. But 127,000 votes. It ends up going to what people described as a very conservative judge. People didn't have a lot of hope that the case would go the way it should go. And that judge basically said, no, I'm not touching this. The people who have sued have no standing. How comfortable do people feel? I mean, obviously, it's case by case, depending on the particular judge and the particular circuit. But how confident do people feel that judges are going to see through some of these last-ditch efforts to save the vote for Trump? Preet, I agree with it. I think the courts have been an important check here so far, up to and including the U.S. Supreme Court, which, which approved either procedurally or substantively extended voter deadlines in Pennsylvania and in North Carolina, although not in Wisconsin, which is a little bit hard to, to sort of wrap your head around. But another factor here, just a practical factor, is it's late for all these challenges, right? I mean, Justice Kavanaugh even talked about, in one of his opinions, this idea of reliance, meaning we've told people, let's take Texas, for example, right? I know it was based on standing, but it's a perfect example. Actual duly elected officials have told people, you can vote by drive through That's okay. And then they did it. It's hard to pull the rug out after that and say, actually, no. There's a legal dimension to that, but it's also just a practical dimension of fairness. So I do not expect our courts to do anything precipitous, especially now, especially as as late as we are in the game. But I want to carve out one little exception. Here's the one thing that I can see happening. If this all comes down to Pennsylvania, if Pennsylvania is the Florida from 2000 of 2020, there is this extra batch of mail-in votes that will arrive between November 3rd and November 6th, right? The Pennsylvania Supreme Court extended the deadline itself. So the Pennsylvania legislature said all votes have to be in by November 3rd. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court said that's not enough time because of COVID. You have till November 6th. The U.S. Supreme Court then declined to intervene, but three justices dissented from that very strongly, not to sound like Donald Trump, very strongly. And they said, it is not up to the Supreme Court, it's up to the legislature, Brett Kavanaugh could easily join that group. And then you have Amy Coney Barrett, who was not part of that ruling because she was two or three days into the court. I can see a coalition of five justices getting together to say, we're throwing out Pennsylvania ballots that arrive between November 3rd and November 6th. If it comes down to Pennsylvania and if the vote count is really close, watch for that. Yeah, I think the question is, would those votes potentially sway that election? And if if that's the case, I totally agree with you, Ellie, that 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 is one of the things I would watch for. Again, I think some of this, some of how much litigation goes forward will depend on how the votes turn out and how many states are in play. Because litigation goes beyond a recount, which is in some states, it's actually automatic that if, if the election is close, that there'll be a, re, a recount. And so some of this, I think, I, I think will depend. On courts, I do think there's also the question of what what goes to the Supreme Court. And just to your point, Ellie, on Wisconsin, I think that the reason the Wisconsin decision was so startling is that it felt like it wasn't giving the benefit of the doubt to the voter on the sort of reliance question. And I do think that courts as a rule, like 
like it or not, the Pennsylvania is a great example where the courts told people that they had those extra three days, right? And so, you know, that decision has been made. The Supreme Court could undo it. And I agree with you, they might, but it really, it, it just feels unfair at this moment in time for a lot of those things to to be done because voters relied on the information that they were given. I'll say on the, you know, on the positive for institutions front would be if a conservative Supreme Court upholds a victory for the Democratic candidate, I would hope that would help heal the country and that, you know, many who might otherwise doubt institutions would feel that they get a fair shake from a conservative Supreme Court, even though it's not the outcome that they that they would have hoped for. And when you look at what the most likely scenario is, which would be the 270s achieved off Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, and Michigan, uh, then Pennsylvania doesn't actually swing the ultimate results of the election. And we might know, subject to the recount provisions, relatively soon. Doesn't mean there wouldn't still be a court challenge, but then if the Supreme Court followed applicable law, you'd have the, the Supreme Court ruling in a way that upheld the results of an election that, although close, is ultimately clear. I mean, I think it's true what Ellie and others have said about judges, right? Judges follow the law, but they're also human beings, and they understand that it's important for people to have faith in what they're doing. And it's one thing to stop a count and to prevent a result from being digested, like largely what happened in Florida and Bush v. Gore in 2000. But it is quite a different thing, even if there are plausible legal arguments on the side of doing so, to undo you know, a called election in a state, right? I just think it's very nearly a bridge too far if it's the case that multiple credible media outlets call Michigan, call Wisconsin, perhaps call Pennsylvania, and the expectation sets in among reasonable people that that state went to Biden to then engage in, you know, indulge in legal machinations to undo that. I think that's different no matter what the legal arguments are. Don't you agree? Yeah. And look, I think John makes a very good point. Looking at this from the perspective of the Supreme Court, they will be loath to do what you just said, to reverse what seems to be the, um, the vote from a particular state. I mean, they're, they're still smarting and their their credibility is still suffering from 2000. And if they then came back around and did something similar or, as you've pointed out, more of a, a perceived overreach by some in this election in on behalf of the Republican candidate, then I think the uh, the institution itself you know, will be forever tarnished. And the politicization of the Supreme Court that we're seeing through the confirmation process, through the way it's perceived generally, is going to be on steroids. And so I think it's very high stakes for the Supreme Court as an institution here. So hopefully it doesn't get to that. And I'm pretty confident that just Chief Justice Roberts and the others are very uh, aware of that concern. I join your confidence on Chief Justice Roberts. I think if we've seen one thing about him, we've seen that he is an institutionalist and that he very much wants to protect the institution. I don't share that confidence for the other justices. I mean, we we just don't know. And so if anything, I think that my fear is that they they bend towards partisan and ideological in, in their decisions in some instances, and that that means here that if Barrett joins that, the sort of four existing folks outside of Justice Roberts, that's the fifth vote. And so... And so it would be a terrible thing for our institutions. And I think the pressure will be on her. She she did not um, sit in the Pennsylvania matter. And so it's a really interesting question, I think, of whether she just takes a pass on the election cases. But if she doesn't, I really, I really worry. And then the question is, can Roberts convince the Republican justices on the court? And they, there shouldn't be Republican or Democratic justices. But I, I do think increasingly in those terms, can he convince them that the overall health of our country and the institution matters more than one presidential election? And I think then we'll see then we'll see the outcome. But I, I would be very worried about the justices outside of Roberts on, on this particular question. Stay tuned for more discussion. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for Stay Tuned comes from American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, a podcast from Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon, a diverse group of abolitionists began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, not the senator, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, 
takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. And in the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by those committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Facing terrible violence, retribution, or even death if caught, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states for those enslaved people who risked the journey, and even went as far north as Canada, where their freedom was assured. You can follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to this season of American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. Can we talk about the media for a moment? I was a little surprised yesterday as the voting was unfolding, or the counting was unfolding, not knowing what to expect from media outlets. And there was a, a bit of a race. And it's funny, different people, I was texting with some number of you, and I'm sure everyone was texting and emailing with friends and colleagues all through the evening. But a lot of people were watching Fox, right? And people have a certain perception of Fox. And Trump was getting really angry at Fox News because they were calling certain races pretty quickly. I mean, I remember at some point, Fox called Virginia, which I think everyone expected to be solidly in the in the Biden column, but nobody else called Virginia. And then I saw a lot of people on on the internets talking about how Fox has lost its mind. And then you got a second outlet at some point later in the evening calling Virginia. But there was a back and forth between and among media outlets to call races. And as everyone knows, the media doesn't call a race. It has no it has no official value whatsoever. They don't certify. They have nothing to do with you know, the official process of an election being over and deciding who the victor is. But they have persuasive power because we're used to media outlets, particularly the AP, which I think, you know, probably has the longest track record of making good, incredible calls, even in advance of official certification. We're kind of trained in this country, right, to buy a call when multiple media outlets say, you know, Michigan went a certain way or Arizona went a certain way. And there's not a lot that the president can do to attack that, interestingly, if those media calls are made, is anybody else surprised, given the context of this election and how the battle was going to be so intense, that they retain that power of credibility and persuasion? I was watching Fox for results primarily and noticed what you said about Virginia, although the AP actually called Virginia relatively early, but but more notably it was Arizona. And it was interesting watching it because they they made the call relatively early. And then they were discussing on air that they were getting furious calls from the Trump campaign. Can we finish where we started on Arizona? <laughs> yeah. You're 100% sure? Yes. And so all this pushback, you're going to say, we made the right call when we made it. We made the correct call. And that's why we made the correct call when we made it. I'm sorry. No, you don't have to be sorry. You just want to be... <laughs> well, you want to make sure you're sure. The, the president yeah. is not happy. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Arnon. We appreciate Arnie. your time. Thank Get you Get back in me. there so we can make some more calls. Yes, Chief. <laughs> Thanks, Arnon. They were transparently reporting the pressure they were under to withdraw the call. And they had their numbers guy on who... They run a, a pretty good numbers shop. I think you raised a good point. It was something I was wondering about. I'm curious other people's thoughts. But so in this age where we know that our greatest period of vulnerability is the period after, well, first would be meddling with the vote. And then our second greatest period of vulnerability and the one that people were most anxious about in the national security law enforcement community is the period between when people have voted and when a victor is declared. And that's always been an issue, right? It's something I think we worried about post-September 11th in terms of undermining the strength of a, of a commander in chief if we end up in an adversarial situation with a foreign nation. And I'm wondering with this change in vote that was probably due to pandemic, but now may permanently change the way the way we vote. What can we do to try to reduce that time period and reduce the uncertainty and what role the media should play? I mean, it seems like one obvious correction would be, I don't understand why states would have rules that prohibit starting to count votes prior to the, the polls closing. That just seems to slow down the process. And I don't, I don't understand what what you gain on the back end of that. So that'd be one. But to your point, Preet, what do other folks think? Like, what should the, the media do? Should there be some new practice as to when they declare? Or is it helpful to have them out and declaring and it's, it's transparent and it has its own power? 
Doesn't the issue also go back to just the way the media has handled the race before Election Day? And I I think it's right to raise issues about the way that the media um, handled even Election Day, because even though they were repeatedly saying the race isn't over, there's still our ballots that have to be counted. We all know, I mean, there's plenty of research about how hard it is to sort of get your mind around that when you're watching a horse race on TV and they're sort of reporting results as though they are results. And so I think I think there's a lot of fair criticisms. But I think also, I mean, and I don't really want to get into the debate about why pollsters are so bad and why they're sort of you know, very unreliable, as we've seen in in multiple elections. But what the media does is they tend to treat a lot of those polls as true. And I think that ultimately ends up impacting election, like the actual results and the way people vote, right? And and so, you know, if you watched almost any of the cable news shows recently, they were all about the multiple paths that Biden had to the election, um, a lot of which were going to be first-time paths for someone to have won. And so not, not well-tread, and there wasn't a lot of caution in how that was being reported. It was being reported as truth. And so I don't know what we do about it in a world that we're hyper- polarized. The media really does drive a lot of the conversation. You know, look, they Trump was out barnstorming the last week. They spent a lot of time covering him, which you would. He's the president of the United States and he's out there the week before the election. But there was a way in which like the media, I, I, I don't know, I feel uncomfortable in many ways with how the media treats the election and just sort of steps back and says, well, we're just calling, you know, the balls and strikes and the facts when it feels like they're actually sort of impacting in some ways how voters see the election, who's up, who's down, who's the underdog. And then on election night, look, I think all the caveats notwithstanding, it's hard for people not to sort of be impacted by it. And then just finally, I would say, to John's point, I agree completely. Early voting is such an important thing. Counting the the mail-in ballots before Election Day feels to me also like a no-brainer. And there are just a lot of ways to make sure that people have the ability to vote and that those votes can be counted up front. And so we do generally get results election night or at the latest the next day, because um, I think that's a reasonable expectation to have them, you know, within 48 hours. I think once you start talking about potentially weeks or months, that's a really, really problematic thing for American democracy. Yeah. And I think your point again about polls is a very good one. You know, they've been around for a long time. You know, Gallup and his buddies perfected the science of polling and, uh, and you know, they've been using campaigns for for generations. But now I, I do get the sense that the media starts touting the polls, citing the polls as fact, that that is the depiction of, of the American voter. And I think that has real life implications. I mean, I think in the run up to this election, I imagine that the Biden folks are thinking, we want a little more urgency in the message to our people. We want people feeling like, uh-oh, it's really close. Our guy isn't that far up. Um, obversely, I think Trump actually used it to his benefit. He used the fact that there was this narrative out there in the press that Biden was ahead to get out and rally his people to come out and to the polls. So I think it actually has real life implications. And I I think here, uh, you know, to the extent somebody benefited, it was Trump. I think also with regard to Preet's original question about the media, it's almost impossible to impose legal restrictions on the media from the outside. That's our First Amendment. The media has adopted some self-impositions over the years. For example, the idea that they will not call any state until the polls close, right? I mean, they could have called New York State or Kentucky two months ago. So I think the media has got, it seems to me, got much more cautious this year, certainly learning on the from the lesson of 2000. But it seemed to me this year that the media was really careful. Fox News, I think, was more aggressive, but we were watching CNN, for the most part, was being very cautious, very careful, very reticent. And that continues now to stress that this is ongoing. And I agree with all, all that was just said by, by Ken and John and Ann. The narrative is so important. Look, we as human beings, we just love the story. We love the narrative. We love the horse race. It's part of our nature. And if you think back through any of our past elections, there was a sports-like horse race flow to it, right? 2000 was this sort of back and forth, the overtime thriller. Um, you had other years that were just blowouts from the start, easy wins, that kind of thing. And it's it's almost interesting to think about what if all the states had come in in reverse order from what they came in, right? I mean, the narrative of this one is shaping up to be Trump jumped out to an unexpectedly big lead that then got slowly whittled away and perhaps Biden sort of nipped him in the end. But if you reverse that, what if all the states came in the opposite? Biden jumps out to a big lead. Trump has this furious comeback and falls. 
just sure. I mean, uh, well, so I would have had a much more pleasant evening. Elliot. Yeah, pre would have pre would have slept better and <laughs> perhaps dr- perhaps drank less One as less well. One less bottle of bourbon. <laughs> exactly. But I did have this moment, this interesting moment, when my kids, who are fifteen and thirteen, were watching. But I realized they're watching this like a football game. Like the way you would glance up at a screen and go, "Okay, it's the third quarter and the Eagles are up 21-10. I know where that stands." They were just looking at the count, going, "Okay, it's one forty-two to one ten, and but but that means nothing, right? I mean, that, without context, that means nothing. I do think the media did a good job of explaining that context and stressing it, but boy, we just love that horse race. Can I ask a question about sort of a larger non-legal issue? At the end of the day, it's I, I believe that Joe Biden will be inaugurated as the next president, based on a lot of things that smart people are saying and and the way things are trending. However, it is also true, by any predictive measure, Donald Trump overperformed. And he overperformed, and may still become the president, I think it's unlikely, but he may still become the president. Even though he has botched the pandemic response, even though he's a serial liar, even though he's a narcissist, even though he's done all these terrible things that have caused an unprecedented number of Republicans, and not just any kind of Republicans, people like Ken Weinstein and others, who have served in who have served at high levels in Republican administrations, including members of the military, say this man is unfit for office. So, to the extent that the people on on this call are are pleased that Joe Biden will become the next president, how mortified are you that it's this close? Yeah, I'll take the first crack at that. I um I was very hopeful that this election would be a repudiation of Trumpism and what he stands for. And Trump the man, but really what he stands for and the way he conducts politics in such a divisive uh, way and, and the damage he's inflicted on our country. This is in 2016, where he really, you know, his governing style was unknowable. He was a businessman. We didn't know what to expect. We thought maybe he'll moderate once he is inaugurated. This is four years later. We've seen, the country has seen the way this man leads and the way he undermines our institutions, the way he assaults our institutions, our norms, the way that he goes after segments of our population, tries to set one part of the population against the other, the way he undermines our friendships and alliances with foreign countries, and then in the basically amoral way he conducts himself. And yet, with that all played out in living color for the last four years, the American people are not repudiating him. I mean, this is going to be a razor-thin margin if Joe Biden wins. And I think that's very disappointing. I was hoping that the American people would show its character by stepping up and saying, regardless of my policy preferences, I cannot be led by a man like this who conducts himself in a way that makes me less proud to be an American. And so I'm going to either not vote for him or vote for Joe Biden. And millions and millions of Americans did not make that choice. And that's very disappointing. That's well said, Ken. I mean, I, I think a lot of people expected, particularly because of the efforts of, you know, Project Lincoln, which I think has, has done a pretty remarkable job of, of marshalling together a group of, you know, never Trump Republicans um, and sort of generally, you know, conservative folks who um, agree that the president has done a terrible job in the pandemic and in, and in countless other ways. Um, so I felt that, that that would have some sway. And yet I think what we saw here is you know, the president leaned hard into into his base um, and into the divisive rhetoric that that he's used. There's also, I mean, I, I wonder, and I, I don't know what you guys think about this, but there's also, uh, he and he did get, he did get the advantage because of the polls of saying he was the underdog and really, and really getting his supporters out. And I, I think you can't underestimate how important that is that, you know, when people think you're, that their candidate is ahead, they don't always go. Um, when they think their candidate is behind, they often believe that their vote matters more. But I also wonder just a little bit of whether when it comes to the coronavirus response, the COVID-19 response, whether some of it isn't also just magical thinking in the sense that we all want this to be over. We all want the world to go back to to normal. And Trump is peddling a reality that he could not deliver on, that there is no possible way 
that is true, um, as we know from the science and the researchers and all the experts who've been telling us this, but it is a much more palatable view of the world, which is, you know, the economy has to get started. The virus isn't that dangerous. We're going to get back to normal. We want things the way that they were, and that maybe people are buying that a little bit. I, I don't know. I, I just sort of wondered a little bit about it's. It's hard for me. Um, and then I think also, obviously, the president um, really exploited this sort of argument about law and order and that communities are not safe, which I completely reject. But I thought the president really, he he did go pretty far. Um, he did go pretty far with that as well. I'm left feeling a bit sad because like Ken and others, I hoped and wanted a repudiation also. Because as Gary Kasparov said on Stay Tuned last week, it's not just about defeating Trump, it's about defeating Trumpism, whatever that is. And this election, even if Biden becomes the next president, in no way, shape, or form defeated Trumpism. I'm going to tell you something else that I'm both sad about and worried about, which we can maybe address, and that is, now suppose Biden is the president, but Mitch McConnell remains the Senate majority leader because not enough Democrats win in the Senate races. You you now have divided government. And I'll throw out a particularly controversial hypothetical (laughs) to this group. Suppose in January, it's Mitch McConnell still leader of the Senate, Joe Biden president, and Justice Breyer retires in the summer, a year and a half before the midterms and three and a half years before the end of the Biden first term. Does Mitch McConnell allow a vote on a substitute and, and maybe even change the hypothetical? Let's say for some reason that we can't foresee, Justice Thomas leaves the court. So there would be a, a big swing in the makeup of the court and the balance of the court if Joe Biden were able to pick Justice Thomas's replacement. What kind of hypocrisy will we see then? It is a great question. It's one I've thought about, too. I mean, how far can McConnell go with respect to, obviously, Supreme Court justices, but also just in the natural course of life, we will have dozens of openings occurring at the district court and court of appeals level. Does Mitch McConnell really have the, for lack of a better term, the chutzpah to say, I'm I'm just not putting any of your nominees through until the, I mean, on one hand, I think, how could he possibly, on the other hand, If he does get that extreme, if he does say, I'm going to hold the Supreme Court seat open for three and a half years or I'm going to approve none of your nominees, what mechanisms are there to remove him or to overcome that short of him being voted out of office or taken out of a leadership position by his own party in the Senate? There really is no way to do that. He already got over that hurdle yesterday. That race was called pretty early. Right, exactly. I'm saying next time, to punish him next time. Yeah. But also, remember, this is exactly what he did with Obama. I mean, he held countless federal judicial seats open and refused to let Obama seat them. And so I expect completely, Preet, that we will see this scenario or some version of it where McConnell will try to get the votes to stop the court, if Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, to stop any Supreme Court nominees going or to control significantly the federal judiciary. And we should be clear that Trump has already done that with McConnell in the last four years, that the, the judiciary has, like, they've literally filled every seat that they can that they can fill. And so I worry a lot about what happens when we are governed in large part or restricted in large part by the, a minority of the country that's really controlling the courts. And also, we should be clear on this. The Senate is an enormous, an enormous consequence of this election. When you think about the ACA, uh, about healthcare, when you think about getting through a COVID stimulus bill, when you think about countless other things, environmental protections, anything that has to be done legislatively, McConnell will basically, he'll put his, his hand on the scale on. And so that's part of the political process generally, but McConnell plays at a different level and we've seen the level he plays at. And so I think we should expect that he will do everything he can to control and to limit Biden's ability to be influential. And I think the question that Ellie asks is the right one, which is, so what can be done? What are the options that exist? And, and you know, I think we all need to think about this a little bit more, but I have a feeling that this reality could face us. I think the best answer I have to that is, what if McConnell just goes full McConnell? And keep in mind, if Biden wins and McConnell remains the Senate majority leader, he will be by far the most powerful Republican office holder in the country, and he'll be alone, right? He will be what Nancy Pelosi has been the last couple of years in fighting Donald Trump. I think the only real solution is that members of the Republican caucus on the Senate, the Mitt Romneys, maybe one or two others, need to say, I'm not on board with this. I'm not, and it depends if we come out at 51 or 52 or whatever, but 
Mitt Romney plus maybe one, plus maybe two, say, I'm not willing to block a judicial nominee for a year and a half or three and a half years or whatever. That's really the only practical solution I can think of. We're running out of time, but I, I want to ask a final question. I, I want to ask everyone to make a prediction. Assume that Joe Biden will soon be seen to be the next president of the United States. We have a number of days before power changes. Can can people Can people offer up what they think President Trump will do on the crazy side in terms of pardons or firings or any other kinds of policy decisions during this precarious transition period? What should we be looking for and what should we be worried about? I'll start off with that. I mean, it's going to be a pardon party like we've never seen before. I mean, right? He's like Michael Flynn is first in line. He'll probably pardon Paul Manafort and George Papadopoulos, even though they've already served their time just for kicks, just to stick it to Robert Mueller. Look, his family members, Ivanka, Don Jr., not that they're under any known federal investigation, but state prosecutors in New York are looking at the Trump organization. Now, a pardon does not apply to state crimes, but Pre and Ann and everyone who's been in the system knows that there are times when cases start off as state-level investigations and then get sent across the street to the feds. So as a protective measure, he may do that. And then the big question is, will he attempt to pardon himself We don't know specifically whether that's lawful because it's never come up before. He may well try it. And then the really wild scenario, which I do not think will happen, but people ask me a lot, is, well, couldn't he resign and then have Pence pardon him? I mean, the answer is yes, but I I don't think that will happen. But can he pardon himself? We may soon get some answers to some of these sort of law school hypotheticals. I mean, he could resign the day before his tenure is over and have Pence do the pardon then. Sure, sure. Yeah, I just don't think his ego. And um, I just think it's, maybe I'll be wrong. I just think it's too low of a move even for Donald Trump and Mike Pence. I don't know that I think that. I mean, every time I think, even with the president releasing the 60 Minutes tape beforehand, I mean, my first reaction was, ah, he wouldn't, you know, he couldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. And my second reaction was, of course he will. Right. And he did. And so I, I always have to temper what I think is like the correct human response, which by the way, has been the norm for both political parties for, you know, for years. And so I think we have to be really clear that like, again, it is Trumpism. It goes beyond Donald Trump, but there is something unique about this movement and this president that I think is inconsistent with how all of us were taught you do government and you interact with others in a way that's fair and honorable. But I expect that Ellie's right. There'll be a pardon party. I am less sure about like the firings. I feel at this moment in time, what the president will want to do is keep his base riled up. What does that do for, you know, if he fires Anthony Fauci, if he fires Chris Ray? I mean, I don't I don't know that I think it helps him in a way. And, and this is how the president will think about it. Does this help me in any way? But I, I do think we should we should all buckle our seatbelts for for what's coming. Well, he doesn't always care about something helping him. I mean, I don't think he fired Jim Comey. He just he just he just hated that guy. That's true. <laughs> Wanted that guy gone. Ken, John, do you think anyone's on the chopping block? Esper, Barr, anyone? One thing I was focusing on in terms of sort of zaniness after the election. Once he does whatever firings he's going to do. Once he sort of he has his challenges to the the Biden election and then takes care of all his pardons. One thing I was thinking about is, does he show up at the inauguration? He just doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who's going to be willing to sit there and smile and then pass the mantle of leadership on to the duly elected successor. And uh, and I, I could see him saying, you know, just packing up his toys and going home and not even appearing, um, which isn't a big deal. And I think I remember reading that one of the early presidents, maybe it was John Adams, you know, said, OK, you didn't elect me. I'm out of here. And he just took off. But I could see him doing that, which is is sort of all optical and it's symbolic, but it's really important symbolism that, you know, that uh, peaceful transfer, willing transfer of power from one president to the next. That that scene we see every, you know, every time there's a change of party where, you know, the one president escorts the other president to the helicopter on the East Lawn. That's so important for the American people to see and for the world to see. I just wonder if he's going to partake in that process. And then also whether if there's a if there's a foreign policy or national security crisis during this interim period, I devoutly hope that when all is said and done in terms of votes being counted, courts have ruled if Biden, as it looks like, is the next president, that current President Trump acknowledges the victory. Because I think in Ken's scenario, it's that he never acknowledges that there was a a fair 
vote and that there should be a transfer of power. And that both creates long-term problems and exacerbates the divisions we already have, where we want to be together as one America, particularly against adversaries who do not share our values. But more pointedly, if there's some crisis during that period and there's not an acknowledgement of the transfer of of power, I am concerned about how information is going to be shared, about how you would do a transition, about the pressure that's going to put on career members of the military, law enforcement, diplomatic corps. So that is a worst case scenario. I recognize it, but that's the one that keeps me up at night. Well, Ken, yeah, you really, I hadn't thought about the inauguration and that tableau. And I think before you mentioned it, and I think you're absolutely correct. Donald Trump cannot be in a room where someone else is the focus of attention, much less be in the room where someone else is the focus of attention because that person has beaten him. I, I just can't see it. And, you know, we thought it was odd when he decided not to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, that he's the first president in generations not to throw out a pitch at a baseball game. He doesn't care about those things at all. And if he's going to do what a lot of people think he's going to do, remain on the scene in public and in the public square, perhaps with his own network, he's also not going to follow the general norm, broken a little bit by Barack Obama in this election cycle, but the general norm of a president not wading into politics and not criticizing his successor he's going to be the loudest voice criticizing Joe Biden every step of the way. And so I just have one amendment to what what Ellie was saying. Yeah, Mitch McConnell will be the lone most powerful Republican in the country as an official matter. But Donald Trump will remain the, the head of the party and re- will remain, you know, the voice for tens and tens of millions of people who voted for him, no matter what he's done. Any Any final thoughts? Pre, I, I think that's a, such a great point. And I wonder to what extent are we going to keep listening to Donald Trump if he loses and is out of office? And I mean that we, the public, and we, the media, right? Are we, I mean, are we still going to sort of give a block consideration to every crazy tweet he sends in the year 2022? And at what point do you just sort of almost do like what we've done with Rudy Giuliani? I mean, he's nuts. We acknowledge him. He's dangerous, but we also sort of push him off to the corner and, and take everything he says with a grain of salt. Except when he's in a Borat movie, then we pay attention. Except, right, then we, exactly. But I do, it'll be interesting to see how we collectively respond to Donald Trump if he's out of office, because I agree, he, he ain't going quietly. Yeah, and look, the difference is that, you know, the president, remember his rallies were fully covered in 2016 from start to finish because he was good TV, because he does say what people don't expect people to say, because he is you know, over the top. And so I I sort of, you know, a lot of people have suggested maybe he would start his own media outfit. Like, I would not be surprised for any of, of that to happen. And so, you know, we're not there yet, obviously, but I, I'm not willing to bet on anything really when where the president is concerned. Thanks, folks. Thanks for getting up in the morning, popping uh, Tylenol or whatever you needed to do. You guys were excellent. Anne, Ellie, Ken, John, sorry we missed Lisa. And I should just, I should end with one final caveat. Much of this conversation has assumed that Joe Biden becomes the next president. That is not certain yet. Based on a lot of things, I think that is true. I think most people on this call think it's true. But just in case we are wrong, I wanted to put that caveat out there. We'll know more in the coming days. Thanks, folks. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.